Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Good afternoon, uh, everyone. Uh, My name is Philip Munoz. I'm the director of the Constitutional Studies Program, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our 2020 Constitution uh, Day lecture. I'm especially sorry today that we can't be meeting in person, uh, but I'm very thankful for all of you for joining us uh, online in this uh, virtual format. Um, uh, A word of thanks uh, to the Jack Miller Center, who uh, is co-sponsoring this uh, event for us. Jack Miller Center, many of you might know, is uh, a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, institution in Philadelphia that sponsors Constitution Day talks all around uh, the country. Um, now, of course, every day is Constitution Day in the Constitutional Studies program, uh, but we join uh, the country today in celebrating Constitution Day, which occurs every day on September 17th. Um, this year is a special uh, year for us. Um, the Constitution of 1787, of course, was far from perfect. Uh, and this year marks the 100th anniversary of the adoption of the uh, 19th Amendment. 19th Amendment in part declares, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. It's especially appropriate that we celebrate the 19th Amendment today, and there's no better person to do that with uh, than my colleague, Christina Wolbrecht, our Constitution Day speaker. Uh, Dr. Wolbrecht is Professor of Political Science here at Notre Dame. She directs our Rooney Center for the Study of American Democracy. She also directs our Washington uh, program for for you students uh, interested in American politics, I encourage you to get to know the Rooney Center. And for those interested in the DC program, please um, uh, 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 be in touch with Professor Walbrook. Uh, her recently published book, A Century of Votes for Women, America, American Elections Since Suffrage, uh, published by Cambridge, examines how women voted across the first 100 years uh, since the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Dr. Walbrook also is the co-author of Counting Women's Ballots, Female Voters from Suffrage Through the New Deal, also published by Cambridge, and The Politics of Women's Rights, which was published by uh, Princeton University Press in 2000. Uh, Both those latter books won National Book Awards. Uh, Scholarly productivity is just one of her many virtues. Dr. Wilbrick is a popular teacher, uh, an able administrator, and she's at the very core of our excellent program uh, in American politics here at Notre Dame. So it's my pleasure to Welcome Dr. Wolbrick uh, and thank her for speaking as our 2020 Constitution Day lecturer. Uh, the title of her talk is A Century of Votes for Women. Dr. Wolbrick. Thanks, Philip. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here uh, be kicking off Constitution Day with all of you. I wanna thank um, Philip and the Con Studies program, Soren in particular, uh, Jen as well, um, for sort of putting this together. We're all sort of relearning how to do our jobs uh, during this pandemic, and it's it's great to have that uh, that possible. Um, Philip, in particular, has been so supportive of this work and of of connecting sort of the work I do on women voters after the 19th Amendment uh, with those of you in the Con Studies program. So I'm just really excited to be here. So um, as Philip said, this is uh, the 19th Amendment. This is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment to the American Constitution. This talk is based, or Professor Munoz said, this talk is based in part 
on some research I've been doing for quite some time now, uh, trying to understand um, how women voted after suffrage. And so uh, Philip already recounted sort of the, the, the words of the 19th Amendment. This is, of course, and I don't have to tell this crowd, a very big deal. We don't amend the Constitution very um, often. Um, and achieving this outcome uh, took more than 70 years of advocacy, of hundreds of state and local level campaigns, as well as multiple campaigns at the national level, as well as a ratification fight after it was passed by the Senate and the House. Um, my research, however, starts sort of on the very next day. Um, now that we've had this struggle, now that the 19th Amendment has been uh, uh, ratified, what do we expect women voters to do, right? Um, how are they gonna cast their ballots? Are they gonna use their votes in particular ways? And so what I wanna do in this presentation is talk about um, how women use the vote, but almost as importantly, how politicians, press, and parties thought women used their votes. Uh, it turns out that for political influence and political power, which is of course um, uh, one of the main, uh, you know, of course the, 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 the whole reason for pursuing the ballot, um, that what people believe about groups of different voters and how they believe that they should be appealed to is almost as important um, as how they actually vote. Now, there are lots of other impacts of the 19th Amendment that we could talk about, and I'm happy to talk about those um, as well, but I'm going to focus today on sort of what was believed about women voters uh, and why. Um, so let me start with some spoilers uh, and to tell you what I'm going to tell you. So I'm hoping by the end of uh, this talk, I'm going to go over three different historical periods, I will have convinced you of, of two things. Um, one is that the same stereotypes and gender role expectations that had made the struggle for women's suffrage so long lasting and so difficult do not disappear the minute that the 19th Amendment has been ratified. So an expectation, for example, that women are actually not that interested in politics. They are rather interested in boxes of chocolate and men with mustaches. Um, um, doesn't entirely go away. Uh, the assumption that women are not political in the same way men are, that uh, there's a certain uh, gender dynamic within the household, um, that women fundamentally approach politics as women, all of those ideas persist, not just in the few decades after 1920, but I hope to uh, convince you um, to this very day. The other thing I wanna convince you of is that there is no woman voter. Um, Again, we'll, we'll hear this all the time. Um, what does the woman voter want? What do women want in this election? It turns out that women are just as diverse in their uh, identities and their interests um, as men are. And there are often, almost always actually, bigger differences among women than there are between women and men. And again, um, my goal is to sort of show you how that works um, here today. So since women entered polling places. And of course, for many women that happened actually before 1920, when the when individual states gave women the right to vote. Um, from the very beginning, of course, politicians and the press have been trying to figure out how are women going to vote? How should we understand this? Of course, there was lots of interest in that even before the ratification of the 19th Amendment. The liquor industry, for example, strongly believed that, that um, women voters would support prohibition uh, and therefore expended lots and lots of money and resources try toward trying to stop uh, the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So what I wanna to do today is, is look at sort of three 
major assumptions about women voters uh, at particular times. Um, there are many more that we could talk about um, and that I could look at, but we're going to look at three in particular. So the first conventional wisdom about women voters was that women's suffrage had been a failure. This is probably the only Constitution Day talk uh, in the country that is going to feature um, headlines uh, from Good Housekeeping, uh, as well as Harper's The Washington Post and other sources. These are all headlines from 1923 and 1924, just three to four years after the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And, and, and sort of the, the conventional wisdom, someone once said, that's kind of like Twitter hot takes before we had Twitter, um, is that women's suffrage is a failure. It wasn't just the press that thought this, and I'll be very specific about what the failure narrative was in, in just a second. Um, but this was a conventional wisdom among scholars um, uh, as well. This is a uh, 1924 article by two sociologists at Dartmouth, and the title of this article really tells you everything you need to know um, about, these, about their conclusions, right? That women got the right to vote and they've pretty much been ineffective in using it. This sort of conventional wisdom is important. When I started this project, yes, 20 years ago, and I would tell, including some of my colleagues in this very department, that I was working on how women voted in the 20s and 30s. They would say to me, well, we already know the answer to that. Most women didn't vote, and when they voted, they didn't vote that differently than men. Um, it turns out that that may or may not be true, but the empirical basis on which it rests is incredibly small. Um, men and women do not put pink and blue ballots into ballot boxes. And so the formal voting record cannot tell us, for the most part, how women, it certainly can't tell us how women voted and it's difficult to tell how many women voted. Um, we don't really have good surveys in the 20s and the 30s that are reliable, that are up to our standards. Um, but if you were to read textbooks from the 50s, 60s, 70s, they will say with great confidence, if you read research from those periods, Women didn't vote, um, and they only vote, when they did vote, they voted basically as their husbands told them to. Um, and having followed those sites back to this source, to this source, to this source, they all come back to this one article, which covers two presidential elections in one American state, Illinois. Might be true, there might be more to the story. So I promised that I would explain what we mean when we say um, uh, women's suffrage was a failure. Uh, this is a quote from a, a popular history of the 20s called Only Yesterday, and Allen argues, the American woman won the suffrage in 1920. She seemed, it is true, to be very little interested in it once she had it, right? So the claim is, the conventional wisdom is, women did not turn out to vote, that they fought so hard, and then they didn't turn out. So what sort of empirical evidence? There's going to be lots of graphs, but I promise that I will try to make them clear. Uh, do we have for this claim that women didn't vote? Uh, the graph in front of you right now is showing turnout rates among women in purple and men in the mustard yellow in the first five presidential elections after suffrage. And what you can see is without question, uh, the turnout of men is far higher than the turnout of women. So men are turning out remarkably in the 20s and the 30s at rates uh, nearing and then exceeding 70%. Uh, in 1920, only about 30%, 35% of women uh, turn out to vote. That number is going to increase. Uh, but nonetheless, there's an enormous gender gap. And so we might conclude from this, yeah, basically most women, and in fact, in 1920, a majority of women chose not to vote. The story, however, gets a little more complicated when we again consider the diversity of women. And in particular, 
um, we recognized that women were not all enfranchised in the same place, but in different American states, and that had a really important impact on whether they turned out to vote and with what effectiveness. So what this graph is showing you is again rates of turnout in 1920 only. Again, men in mustard, uh, women in purple. Yes, those are uh, the women's suffrage uh, colors. Uh, Got to keep sort of on brand here. Um, in a in a in a, a series of ten American states, starting with Virginia, Massachusetts, and Connecticut on the left, a number of Midwestern states in the middle, and then Missouri and Kentucky um, uh, uh, there at the end. So. Uh, again, in every American state, women are more likely, uh, excuse me, men are more likely to turn out than are women, although the size of that difference varies considerably. So if you look at Missouri on the far right, that's the smallest gender gap. There's still, you know, a good 20 point gap there. Um, but in Connecticut on the far left, the gap is about 40 points. Um, but of course, the interesting piece here is uh, the sort of considerable variation. So in some states, very few women turned out to vote. In Virginia, for example, uh, our estimates show that fewer than 10% of women turned out to vote in 1920. Massachusetts and Connecticut only do a little bit better um, with about 20% of women turning out to vote. On the other hand, in Missouri and Kentucky, more than 50% of women turn out to vote in the very first election in which they have the opportunity. So women did not have the vote in these states in advance of 1920, uh, but more than half of them turned out on election day. And so the question is, what makes women in Missouri and Kentucky, where lots of them turned out, different from women in places like Virginia, Massachusetts, and Connecticut? Um, and part of the answer is that they were enfranchised in very different political contexts. Um, one of those contexts has to do with the legal barriers to voting. Um, uh, those states, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Virginia, all had some combination of these legal voter uh, uh, barriers to voting. They had poll taxes where you had to pay um, a tax, usually far in advance, uh, in order to participate in an election. If you hadn't paid your poll tax in previous elections, you needed to pay all the previous poll taxes, usually uh, before you could pay this year's poll tax and vote in this election. They had literacy tests, which were not really literacy at all, and um, uh, executed, let's just say, with uh, plenty of um, uh, bias. Um, and many of them had very long residency requirements. Uh, and I wanna say one thing about that one in particular. Um, these barriers were very real, and I'll of course talk about why they were in a minute, but they also had very direct effects. So um, in four states in the American South, they're not in the data I have here, um, state officials said, well, that's really nice that the 19th Amendment was ratified at the end of August, but our deadline for paying your poll tax and registering was four or five months ago. Uh, women, you missed that deadline, so we're sorry, you can't actually vote in the 1920 presidential election. We'll see you in 1924, right? So, um, uh, as, uh, again, I'm going to assume uh, folks at Econ Studies talk know, the U.S. Constitution says very, very little um, about uh, voting rights, the 15th and the 19th and the 
it being the most obvious sort of exceptions to that. But the administration of, of elections happens almost entirely at the level of the states. And suffice it to say, states really varied in how interested they were in accommodating new women voters. So some states did as those four southern states did. Other states called special legislative sessions. They opened, you know, to change the rules to let women come in on certain days to have um, extra registrars, um, etc. But many did not. Now, these sorts of laws um, were meant to, of course, suppress the vote and to suppress the vote of particular populations in places like Virginia to keep black voters from the from polling places and in places like Massachusetts and Connecticut uh, to keep uh, new immigrant voters away from polling places. In those two states in 1920, 60% of the population was first or second generation immigrants. So if you're going to suppress those votes, you're going to be suppressing a lot of votes. Um, in the 1920s. We might also think that these sorts of barriers would have a particularly strong impact um, on women. Why might we? Um, if you are already not so sure that women voting is such a good idea, you might not be so enthusiastic about paying the poll tax for both the husband and the wife. And certainly if you could only afford one poll tax, you're almost certainly going to pay it for the husband and not the wife. Um, if you are a woman uh, who is now being enfranchised uh, sometime in your uh, middle or, or late life stages, you've never voted before, you don't know how to do it, and you know when you go, they're going to give you a really complicated test and, and judge your intelligence, um, you might not be so enthusiastic about showing up. That doesn't mean that there weren't lots of women that overcame all of these. I did too. That sounds like my house. It's going to be less likely to do so. Um, and in fact, that's what we find. Uh, so this graph is showing the turnout of women on the left and men on the right in 1920. Uh, yellow states are places that had a lot of these election barriers, some combination of poll taxes, literacy tests, et cetera. The purple states are places. Uh, the states in the purple bar had very few of those sorts of restrictions. Um, and sure enough, um, women's turnout in, uh, both men's and women's turnout, I should say, are, are, is higher in places with fewer barriers. That being said, women's turnout declines even more in places with restrictive election laws than does men, suggesting that these sorts of barriers um, certainly uh, uh, suppress the votes of the people that they were directed at, but had an additional impact on um, women in particular. Um, it, it is, and, and one other, I guess I'd say one other piece of evidence of this is, is we actually see white women in the South mobilizing against the poll tax uh, after the 19th Amendment, uh, another sort of example of effect, not because they were filled with, with so much concern about racial, racial bias, but rather than they understood that it was a barrier for women um, in particular. The other difference I want to highlight about these states has to do with the level of competition in them. The 1920s was a period of uh, widespread one-partyism, where uh, most American states were dominated by one party or the other. The most extreme example of that is going to be the states of the former Confederacy um, in the American South, where uh, Democrats so dominated elections, uh, there was so little true two-party competition um, in the vast majority of elections, uh, there was no um, alternative to the Democrat on the barrier um, that um, you can't actually call the South during this period, those states, um, authentic democracies. There's, there's no uh, electoral competition to speak of. 
In the North and the West, um, many states had very strong majorities for Republicans, not as strong as the Democrats had, um, but still we're talking about Republicans winning elections with 20, 30% of the ballot. A very few states um, were more competitive, but still leaned uh, in the case of the pink states in a Republican direction in the case of uh, the few light blue states in the Democratic direction. I'll point out that, of course, Virginia, uh, with extremely low turnout, is a, a one-party Democratic state. You might notice that Missouri and Kentucky are both uh, categorized as competitive states, but on, on either sides of the aisle. Here again, we see that for both men and women, as you go from the competitive states in uh, green to the one-party Republican states in yellow to the one-party Democratic states in purple, turnout is declining for both men and women. So these, that lack of competition matters for both. It just matters much more for women. Why does competition matter so much? Um, people then believe that their vote actually makes a difference and are more mobilized to get out. Perhaps more importantly, candidates and parties know that they need every single vote in order to win. Electoral college votes in Kentucky in 1920 were decided by 0.05% of the vote. Uh, you better believe that uh, uh, political candidates and political parties were not going to be slowed down by any gender norms when they tried to get every single eligible voter out to vote on election day. What that meant is that in terms of turnout in the 1920s, the differences between women were bigger than the differences between women and men. So a woman in Kentucky versus a woman in Virginia, the difference in the probability that they would turn out to vote is 50 points. There is no state in which the difference between men and women is more than about 40 points. What that means is that women in Kentucky, their rates of turnout were much more similar to men in Kentucky than they were to men in Virginia, okay? So where you were enfranchised, what the sort of electoral context was for you um, was more important than your gender. Now you can look at this graph and you know, gender still mattered in every single state, women were less likely to turn out. But to really understand um, women voters, we have to sort of understand them in all of their complexity. Uh, this is also true if we go back and we look at turnout over time, there's a 32 point gap in 1920 compared again to that bigger gap uh, between women in different states. Um, you'll notice on this graph that both men's and women's turnout is increasing over the 20s and moving into the New Deal per period in the 1930s. Um, but that women's turnout is increasing at, increasing at a slightly uh, greater rate. And so the difference between men and women in 1936 is narrower than the difference in 1920. That will continue to be the case. Uh, but it will take until 1980, this is turnout from 80 to 2016, it will take until 1980 uh, for women to become more likely to turn out than our men. Uh, and that has persisted since then. Uh, it's worth saying that there are actually more women casting ballots for president as early as 1964. Uh, and that is because there are more women in the eligible electorate. We do not die, we stick around. Um, and therefore, even a slightly lower rate of turnout resulted in more women voters. Conventional wisdom number two. Um, not only was the concern that women um, did not vote, uh, did not turn out to vote, and women's suffrage was a failure in this, in that way, but our friend Frederick Lou Allen goes on to say, she voted, that is the American woman voted, but mostly as the unregenerate men about her did. Um, the complaint here, or the conventional wisdom here, wasn't just that women voted differently. 
it's that they voted as their husbands instructed them. So the top headline is from the Boston Globe in 1920. The bottom one, tell, they, tell, they vote as husband tells them to vote, is from the Detroit Free Press in 1952. So this basic assumption that um, the fact that the you know, percentage of women voting Republican and men voting Republican isn't very different is attributed to an expectation that women did as their husbands told them to do. And here again, I would suggest that many of our sort of assumptions about gender roles and, and gender capacity, uh, that women don't really care as much about politics, that it's too complicated for them to understand, um, is definitely sort of informing uh, views here. These views have important consequences. Um, so in the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, George Gallup will be basically inventing uh, survey research as we know it today, uh, doing systematic random uh, polls uh, to determine um, attitudes on all sorts of things. He mostly was involved in marketing, but sometimes uh, he cared about polling, uh, cared about politics as well. George Gallup and his political polls wanted to understand how do people decide how they're going to vote, right? That was, that was sort of the idea. So I'm going to ask them how they're going to vote. And then I'm going to ask them, what are your policy preferences? What are your demographic characteristics? What is your identity? What do you know about politics? Do you pay much attention to it, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the idea is that by looking at all these factors, you could see why does one person vote for Truman and another one for Dewey, right? Um, and that was sort of the goal uh, uh, that, that uh, Gallup had. Gallup, because, well, let me say it this way, Gallup didn't actually think he needed to figure out how women voted. Um, as this quote suggests, he already knew how women voted. They did what their husbands told them to do. And so in these landmark sort of early public opinion polls, Gallup on purpose undersampled women. Um, he didn't think it was worth his time to submit a lot of questionnaires to women. They were just going to vote as their husbands did. But if you really wanted to understand what voters care about, you, you really need to focus on men's public opinion. And that is what Gallup did. Once again, this was not just um, a conventional wisdom in, um, in the press and among politicians, but among scholars as well. Um, so if any of you have the great privilege and honor and opportunity to go to graduate school uh, and study American politics, uh, American politics, these would all be works that you would be intimately familiar with. These are the classic, original, canonical, still read, still impacting how we study things. Uh, works about uh, how Americans vote and, uh, and about public opinion, the, the last one, the Converse piece in particular. And all of these authors agree. They all look at the data from different elections and different surveys, and they agree that women vote as their husbands told them. Or as Phil Converse, uh, and I have to point out that Phil Converse's wife also had a PhD in political science and uh, ran the polling operation at the University of Michigan. Uh, the wife is very likely to follow her, follow her husband's opinions, however imperfectly she may have absorbed their justifications at a more complex level. So let's look at the evidence, right? So uh, again, I'm putting out a conventional wisdom. We're going to talk about the evidence in favor of this. Uh, I took the first quote, and what I want you to see uh, is that there are four empirical claims being made in these two sentences. Men discuss politics with their wives, that is, they tell them. Husbands tell their wives how to vote. They do not particularly respect them. Empirical claim number two, husbands don't respect their wives when it comes to politics. Empirical claim number three, on the side of the wives, there is trust. Wives trust their husbands on political matters. Empirical claim number four, on the side of the husbands, there is a, the need to reply or, or guide. 
husbands perceive a need to guide their wives when it comes to political matters. These are initial surveys. These are massive surveys. The, some of them took up to two hours to fill out. What, what is the evidence uh, that supports the claims being made in this particular um, uh, quote? Uh, this is the original survey, uh, the original um, sort of uh, graph from uh, this book, uh, Voting. Um, as you can see, life was rough before we got Excel, um, uh, but that's all right. Uh, what this is showing you is um, uh, the percentage of men and women in June and then October uh, who said that they would go to a family member to discuss a political question. So to be clear, um, the claim is husbands tell their wives how to vote. The specific questions that are being asked in June have you talked politics with anyone recently? In October, who was the last person you discussed the election with? It is entirely possible that many women, some women, lots of women, or lots of husbands told their women how, told their wives how to vote. Entirely possible. It's less clear that this data supports that conclusion. Um, it might have been that all of those discussions, and it might be that the fact that women were much more likely to list their husbands as discussion partners than were men, indicates that sort of men telling. Um, but I would suggest that that is not obviously or apparently uh, uh, true. Um, it's also worth mentioning that if you presume that in the uh, 1940s and 1950s that women were much more likely to not work outside the home, than were men. Uh, the possibility that the last person you discussed anything with was a family member was almost certainly uh, higher for women than it would be for men. What about those other four empirical claims? Respect, trust, reply, or guide? Um, okay, I'm missing a file, that's no good. All right, so there would have been a slide that said, no questions asked, so that's easy. Um, there are no questions asked in this survey about any of these uh, empirical claims, right? So what's happening and what is always something we have to be really sensitive to and be thinking about is that scholars, smart, informed people are looking at this data and they're saying, how do I understand what produced this data? We would call that a data generating process. And they went, well, we understand what families look like. We understand fundamentally that men are more interested in engaged in politics than women are. Um, we sort of get all this stuff. And so the answer to what produced this data is just apparent to us. And let me say again, for all we knew, that was happening in many households. Um, but they are basing those assumptions on their view of the world, their expectation for the way that families work, rather than um, on any empirical evidence. It's not as if they couldn't imagine an alternative. So this is a New York Times, a very long story actually, in the New York Times uh, around the 1956 presidential election about women voters. And the quote I've highlighted, if married couples tend to vote the same way, and they do, it is because their environment gives them the same orientation rather than because the woman rubber stamps the man's choice. Um, uh, and, and let me say, it remains to be the, the case today that while not all husband and wife uh, pairs vote for the same candidates, um, the vast majority of them do. And, and why is that? Is that because the husband tells the wife? Maybe, maybe in some cases. Is that because people who choose to marry each other tend to share values, interests, beliefs, religious backgrounds, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, etc.? all things that we know affect vote choice. 
Um, if you choose to vote to marry someone very similar to you on those dimensions, the likelihood that the two of you vote the same way becomes uh, very, very high. So I told you um, a couple of stories about how politicians and political scientists in ye olden days um, you know, were affected by stereotypes and made assumptions about women voters that um, either we don't have good empirical evidence for, and we have good alternative hypotheses for, um, or are just not supported um, by the data. Uh, but surely, by the time we get to 2016, the behavioral revolution is, is uh, long since underway. We've learned so much. We have so many more people studying uh, women in politics. Surely that we're going to get this, this one right. Uh, and I would like to say, I would like, I would hope um, that we have, in fact, gotten more sensitive to some of these different um, uh, issues. Uh, but nonetheless, um, we go into the 2016 election. Uh, the top uh, uh, headline is from NPR. The bottom is from the election site 538. Um, believing that we're going to have an enormous gender gap, that men and women are going to react dramatically different to the choices given them in the, 19, in the 2016 presidential election. On the one hand, you have the first woman ever nominated uh, by a major political party. Surely women must be very excited to go in and, and vote for a woman candidate because she is a woman. Uh, on the other hand, you have um, uh, the other party's candidate who's, you know, says terrible things about women, has been credibly accused uh, of doing terrible things to women. Surely women, I don't really know why you would assume men wouldn't be equally offended, but that's a whole different story. Surely women are going to vote um, for the other candidate. Um, so let's take a moment and, and talk a little bit about the gender gap in presidential elections. Um, this is showing, uh, the, the line is showing the percent of women who voted Democratic minus the percent men who voted Democratic in every presidential election since 1952. Uh, and what you can see is in that uh, 52, 56, and 60, women were actually more likely to vote Republican uh, than were men. Um, this is particular, particularly fun because the 1960 newspapers that we analyzed are all full of stories about, you know, women just swooning over uh, John Kennedy, uh, but more of them voted for Richard Nixon, um, it turns out. Um, I'd also want to point out that this is actually a worldwide phenomenon. It's often referred to as the traditional voting gap. In most advanced industrial uh, countries, uh, after women were enfranchised, women were more likely than men to support center-right parties. This is usually attributed to um, women's uh, greater commitment to religious values and uh, religious adherence. Um, however, since about 1980 in the United States, and I should say again, in about this same period around the world, um, women have been more likely than men to vote Democratic, um, uh, which is sort of the, the, the modern gender gap, which is what it's called, and because in other places in the world, uh, this is true as well. Um, uh, uh, women are more likely to favor center-left parties um, than men are, and I would be happy to speak at great length um, about why that is if anyone has that question. Um, so here's the gender gap. We're going into 2016. We've got, you know, these two very polarizing particular candidates. Surely we're going to have this enormous gender gap. So I'm now going to show you the 2016 gender gap. Prepare yourselves. Did you miss it? Right? It's not big. <laughs> it's not historically large. Uh, and in fact, um, as in previous elections, 90% of women who already identified as Democrats voted for Hillary Clinton, about the same percentage as men, uh, and, and vice versa on the Republican side. So at least by 2016, we had figured out 
some nuance to that, that all women weren't the same, right? Uh, and so very quickly, the conventional wisdom, and by this time we really did have Twitter hot takes, um, was that this was a dynamic about women, right? That Hillary Clinton had done something wrong because a majority, I think something like 52% of white women voted for Donald Trump. I'm gonna show you all these numbers in just a second. Um, and, and the question was, what was it about Donald Trump that is so attractive to white women, right? Given all the things that we've said, how could it possibly be that the majority of white women voted for Donald Trump? So the first thing to say is that um, there are many ways in which um, the election of 2015 was very unusual, but many ways in which it was very normal. And it was normal in the sense that white women, a majority of white women have voted for the Republican candidate for president in every single election save two, since 1952, okay? Um, and this graph is showing you white women in yellow, uh, black women in uh, purple, uh, percent voting uh, for the Republican party out of the two uh, major parties, 52 through 2016. Everybody voted Democratic in 1964. It's the biggest landslide in American history, um, whereas nobody did in 1972. Um, uh, and then 1996 is the uh, re-election of uh, Bill Clinton. You might notice that 1992 is also below the zero line, excuse me, before the 50% line. Uh, Ross Perot won 20% of the vote uh, in that election. And so actually nobody got, if you include the third party, nobody got a majority of anybody's votes, uh, actually. Um, so let's look a little bit more closely at this, right? So the first thing to say is that if, there's nothing specific about Trump or Clinton that would explain this. This is just, the fact is, most white women in the United States identify as Republicans and have for a very long time. So here again, I want to make a, 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 a point about how the diversity between women, among women, far exceeds the diversity between women and men. So this is white, uh, white voters on the left, black voters on the right, uh, the percentage of them voting Republican in 2016, men in uh, uh, yellow, I don't know, I can't ever remember how to say yellow, uh, men in, uh, women in purple. And so I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice that with, among whites and among blacks, there is a gender gap. The men are more likely to vote Republican and Side one of the stories of why there's a gender gap is actually has more to do with men's behavior than women's behavior. Men are more likely to vote Republican among both groups. What you're also going to notice, of course, is that a majority of white folks, male and female, vote Republican, while only a very small minority of white people in 2000, excuse me, of black people in 2012 voted for the Republican candidate. They voted overwhelmingly for the Democratic candidate. Um, and so Again, white women in their voting preferences are far more similar to white men than they are to black women, right? Um, and we see this across other sort of demographic, demographic characteristics that uh, race, education, ethnicity, um, uh, income, uh, etc., that gender gap persists. So there is definitely something gendered happening. And again, I'm happy to talk about that later. Um, but that these other differences, women with and without a college degree, for example, as you're about to see, um, are pretty different from each other. So what happens in 2016, right? So remember, 2020, 2012 is Obama versus Mitt Romney. The most scandalous thing Mitt Romney said about women is that he had binders full of them, uh, which is actually an endorsement of affirmative action, um, right? But there's virtually no change in the support for the Republican Party 
women and men among whites in 2016. So that's what this next bar is showing you, right? Um, and those two things look very, very similar to each other because the rates really did not change dramatically. When we look at African-Americans, we see something quite similar, um, that um, sort of their gender gap persists in 2016, um, but still overwhelmingly African-American men and women vote for the Democratic candidate. You might actually notice that sort of both of those numbers go up among black voters, um, and, and which might raise the question of what about Trump was so appealing that he was able to get more uh, black support than had the previous um, uh, Republican candidate. Uh, I think most people who study these things carefully would say, uh, actually what you see in 2016 is a pretty normal distribution of black votes, but what you see in 2012 is the overwhelming support of the African-American party for uh, Democratic nominee Barack Obama. Right, and so that's more of that story there. But I told you that men and women are complicated and that women and men are different from each other and women are different from other women. Um, and so let's look a little bit more closely at um, white voters. We're trying to understand what happened with white voters in 2016. So this graph is only white voters. Um, on the left, it is showing you how white voters who do not have a college degree voted in 2012. Again, men, uh, in yellow are more likely to vote Republican than are women in purple. Uh, the other graph right now is showing you um, uh, men and women with a college degree in 2012. Again, there's a gender gap um, and in both cases, a decline. So uh, reversing decades long uh, uh, patterns, uh, whites with a college degree are actually more democratic now um, than, than whites without a college degree. So what happened in 2012, right? Um, we've talked a lot, there's been a lot of talk about um, working class voters and their support for Donald Trump. And every New York Times uh, article, right, is uh, somebody in a diner talking to um, a man who works at a factory about why he supported Donald Trump and why he's gonna to continue to do that in 2020. So here's what happens for non-college educated white voters in 2016. What you can see is that among men, there's a slight growth in support, that's the yellow bar, uh, for Donald Trump in 2016 over Mitt Romney in 2012. But the real swing, the real difference is among women without a college degree. Um, uh, their difference is um, almost, well, I know is statistically significant, whereas the swing among men is so small that it, it's probably not statistically um, significant. And in fact, the swing among non-college educated white women is so great that they're now slightly more likely to vote Republican than are white men without a college degree. Which is to say, if you wanna understand Trump voters, you probably should be talking to those waitresses at the diner uh, and not the people, um, you know, the, the men that are, that are eating there. We're gonna see the opposite thing um, happen among whites who do have a college degree. A slight decline in Republican support among men, but almost certainly not statistically significant. So, and what that means is the best I can say is there's no change, but a quite significant uh, downward shift among white women with a college degree, much less likely to vote Republican in 2016. My point is simply that what can look like little change and lots of consistency on, uh, on sort of the face of it almost always gets more complicated when we think of men and women uh, as voters as complicated human beings who have lots of sort of differences. So Donald Trump's, you know, and there's a reason why he's been talking about suburban housewives um, in his tweets. 
keeping those non-college educated white women on his side in 2020 is a really important uh, a part of his campaign. Um, I just want to suggest that these patterns actually look quite similar um, among uh, black voters. If you don't see any um, uh, confidence intervals, that's what that black line is, it means that the, that the amount cannot be distinguished from zero. Um, so another way of saying that is if you look at college educated black women in 2012, there was a certain small percentage that voted for the Republican candidate, about 5%. In 2016, our data picks up basically no black women with a college degree who voted Republican. Um, but the story is a little bit different. No black women without a college degree voted Republican in 2012, and a number of them did so in 2016. The reason the confidence intervals are so big is that um, we designed um, our surveys way back in the 40s and the 50s to get a, a glimpse of, uh, you know, with about 2,000 people, you can say something about the population as a whole. But as the, as the electorate has grown so much more diverse, once you get down to black voters and then men versus women and then college educated and not, um, you don't really have enough people to make uh, good inferences. And, and this is just saying, uh, uh, showing from 1940 through 2016, uh, the gray bar is the percent of the United States population that is basically non-white. Uh, that's a problematic category, but we'll use it to make the point here. Um, you can see, of course, the effect of Jim Crow in 48, 56, and 64, where their representation in the electorate, uh, yellow again men, purple again women, is far below their representation in the population. That has changed. And in fact, uh, another puzzle for us, uh, because there are reasons to think this wouldn't be the case, uh, black women now have the highest uh, turnout rate of any group of voters in the United States other than white women. They're about equal with white women. Uh, they even turn out at higher rates um, than white men do. So what are women going to do in 2020? I want to point out that this slide is blank. Um, uh, uh, for many reasons, um, uh, learn to be, uh, we, we were humbled by 2016, not because the polls were bad, but for other reasons. Um, and I, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to, to make a lot of predictions about 2020. To the extent I will, the, the, the prediction is that the past is always the best predictor of the future. I expect there will still be a gender gap. How big it is uh, might, have a, might have a big impact on what happens in this race. One of the things that's happened over 100 years is that as the parties have become much more closely balanced, the gender gap matters more than it ever has. Um, when one party's clearly in the majority, the fact that women vote a little more, a little less for it doesn't really matter. When those parties are right at the 50% line, 50 line uh, moving any voters one way or the other is a big deal. And with that, I will stop talking and unshare my screen and I look forward to your questions. Professor Wilbrick, thank you so much. Uh, extraordinarily informative uh, and very interesting. Um, I'm going to turn uh, the Q&A over to Soren Hansen. Soren's a fellow in the Program of Constitutional Studies and uh, is far more technologically savvy uh, than I am. So uh, Soren, I'll turn it over to you and you can direct Q&A. But let me, uh, before doing that, uh, again, just say thank you to Professor Wilbrick. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Wilbrecht. That was a wonderful lecture. Um, to do the Q&A portion, we just ask that you use the raise hand function um, on the Zoom lecture. If you want to go ahead and if anyone wants to start with a question, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Um, I can call on you and we ask that you introduce yourself before uh, voicing your question. 
And as we wait for people to think, Professor Wilbuck, I, I was hoping it would be all right if I went first and wanted to ask you in terms of um, sort of a pedagogical question, as you focus a lot on how we're moving in this direction of um, understanding that, you know, women, women, among women voters, there's a vast discrepancy of opinion and political ideas and um, yeah, goals for the country, basically. As you go about teaching this subject, and you mentioned at the beginning that you are teaching on this topic this semester, um, how do you think your approach would change or how should we approach um, teaching students about uh, suffrage in general and especially speaking to women, um, how partisan or, or um, yeah, how much, how do we continue to move in that direction in other words? That's a great question and it's something I think a lot about a lot. Um, and so I have taught a class on political parties at Notre Dame every year that I've been here. So for more than 20 years, um, it's actually my favorite class to teach. And I always start that class by saying, um, this class is about what role uh, political parties play in a democratic system, how they represent interest, how they channel ambition, all these sorts of things. It's not about which party is right or wrong. And, and literally the sort of discussions we have just don't even lend themselves to that, right? They're just not sort of the way that the, the, the topic goes. Um, being, and, and I should say over time, I have had students who I grew close to and worked carefully with go on to work on the left and the right um, all over the place, um, uh, uh, those sorts of attitudes. Um, that has grown harder in recent years and particularly through 2016 um, for a couple of reasons. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to the suffrage in particular. Um, that is to say, while I'm not here to say um, uh, which party is better or worse, um, I, I do feel as a political scientist a certain commitment to basic democratic norms. Um, uh, you don't use power to uh, you know, shut down the free press. People have a right to protest. Um, uh, elections should be free and fair and everyone should have access to the ballot, all those sorts of things. And so, um, as some of those topics have become partisan, that is more difficult, right? To say that I have commitment to certain democratic principles um, and we should be concerned about those principles being under assault uh, without sounding horribly partisan is, is hard. Um, and, but the truth is I, I can't do anything about that, that sort of reality. I have felt that a little bit in, um, in teaching and in talking so much about suffrage during the centennial year. Um, I find it a little bizarre that there might be any way in which the idea that it's okay for women to vote um, might be controversial or partisan. Um, but there is this sort of assumption that if you're talking about women voters, you must be on the left. Um, and I guess I would say at least two things about that. Um, one is that, um, as I often say, um, women being more likely to vote democratic than men sounds like all women vote democratic. Uh, and, and you just saw that's not true, right? And so um, trying to get away from those sorts of ideas, I think is important. Um, I think it's also important to, to be true to what I said, which is that the range of opinions. So when I teach a regular women in politics course, we, we read a lot about the second wave of the women's movement, and then we read a lot about the conservative backlash to that. We read about uh, conservative groups and how they frame these questions and how they think different about problems like domestic violence, the proper role of the state, etc. Um, when when we look at candidates, we look at how both you know men and women and on either side use gender as a strategy. And um, and I think that's important to say. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is it's in particularly important because it turns out the vote is a really blunt tool, 
when you vote for somebody, nobody knows if you voted for them because of the environment or despite it, because of abortion or despite it, right? And so votes became meaningful either, as we just saw today, the press decides what that vote means and why you voted that way, right? So the original gender gap is always attributed to, by the press, abortion and other issues. I'm here to tell you that is not the cause of the, of the gender gap. It is none of those sort of family values sort of issues, okay? It's not what's doing it. Um, but, but to sort of recognize um, that it is when, so you can either let the press do it or women or other groups have to do it themselves, right? And so the importance of women's organizing is to put some ideas behind their votes. This is the things that we care about. And I'll also finally say, historically, Republicans have actually been much better at that. Like they do really detailed focus groups. They're like, these women will never vote for us. These women will what do these women in the middle care about? And it's probably not just about gender stuff. Uh, and so we're gonna talk about those issues. Thank you, thank you for the answer. Um, Nicholas Holmes, you have a question? Go ahead and unmute yourself. Thank you, Professor Wolbert, for um, this very interesting lecture. Um, so I'm Nicholas Holmes. I am a, um, a political science and history major with a minor in constitutional studies and I'm a senior. Awesome. So my question was um, on how you mentioned that around 1980, um, women in Western democracies went from being um, generally voting more likely to vote for center-right parties to voting for center-left parties. I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more to kind of why you think that um, change occurred and um, if it kind of occurred simul relatively simultaneously throughout the West or if it kind of happened um, at different times overall. So that is a great question, and I have like four hours of lecture on that, but I'm going to try to give you a short answer. And look at how long of an answer I gave to Soren, so just settle in here. Um, it didn't happen everywhere uh, in democracies at the same time, though about the same time, and in most democracies seems related to some of the same developments. Um, the, what seems to drive most of the gender gap is that women on average are more supportive of um, the social welfare state and government in general. So spending on education, spending for the poor, spending for the aged, healthcare, right? You name it, okay? Um, lots of important differences um, on those sorts of issues. Uh, the question then is why? Um, and, and this is another great example of sort of stereotypes. So um, traditionally political scientists would talk a lot about it's because women are more compassionate, right? And, and this is all sorts of stereotypes. Women are too emotional to be involved in politics. You have to be rational, right? Women just look at the babies. They don't understand that, you know, it's better to not uh, uh, give them handouts or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, interestingly, though, the, most of the evidence of that is just the fact that women voted Democratic. Um, when, say, labor unions overwhelmingly support Democratic candidates, we don't think that's compassion. We think that's economic interest, right? So then the question is, what's happening in the 60s and the 70s that leads to this emergence in 1980? It's, it's growing before that. There's really no difference between men and women in the 60s and the 70s that will make that happen. Um, and, and here again, both in the United States and around the world, there's um, a bunch of pieces that sort of come together. Um, one of them is that the parties become more distinguished on these sorts of issues. So in the 60s, the Great Society programs, um, Medicare, Medicaid, urban renewal, all those sorts of things, right? Um, they were already separated from the New Deal, but even more so, it becomes a real dividing line between the parties. Um, at the same time, 
more and more, this is a period of sort of dramatic disruption in women's lives. So uh, marriages become later, divorce becomes more common, and many, many, many women enter the paid workforce. This had always been true for poor and for black women, uh, but it becomes true across the board for all women in the 60s and the 70s. Why should that matter? Well, I'll give you two reasons that might matter. One reason it might matter um, is that women who enter the workforce are suddenly, well, the combination of growing marital stability and instability um, and, and, and working outside the home has a couple of uh, impacts. One of them is that women's bargaining power, I know we don't like to think about marriage like that, but their economic uh, bargaining power becomes much different. Um, and so women get out of bad marriages, they can do that, they can support themselves, but it also means they're only dependent upon their themselves, right? Uh, and so if you're a woman in the workforce and you're now a single mom or whatever it is, you might be being sexually harassed. You might be, because you were the last hired, the first fired. You might be paid less uh, than men are, et cetera, right? And so the idea that government could do something to solve those problems becomes more important to you, right? So that's the first thing to say. Um, well, and the other way to say that is women are just more economically vulnerable, and so they're gonna be sympathetic to programs that try to address that vulnerability. The other piece is also that Enormous percentages, more than half of women who entered the workforce in the 60s and the 70s, did so in the public sector. Women are school teachers, women are nurses in public hospitals, women are social workers, right? And so in much the same way as people in labor unions vote their economic interests, women may understand their economic interests differently um, than men do. And those same sort of changes to the social welfare state um, and, and changes to women's circumstances, especially again in advanced industrial countries, is very similar in the 60s and the 70s. Um, there's lots of other things we could talk about. The, the things that, uh, let me say one more thing, um, and this is important. The other thing that happens in the 60s and the 70s with social welfare is it becomes entangled with racial attitudes. Um, so people have done these studies. If you look at stories about uh, welfare programs in the 40s and 50s, even through the 60s, early 60s, uh, Mostly you're seeing images of poor people in Appalachia, white people, um, right? One sort of view of poverty. With those great society programs, uh, you can literally watch the newspapers and the magazines change where our image of poverty becomes very raced, right? So it's not just spending on education or healthcare for other white people, but it's spending on that for black people. Um, and, and, and so attitudes about social welfare become very closely tied to um, conservatism on race. Um, this isn't the whole story, but it is true. Uh, more so than compassion, the psychologists tell us that women are actually more tolerant um, on, on many of these sorts of issues. Um, they're not to say that there aren't plenty of, of, of racist women, because there are, um, but that may be less of a driver. And so the original gender gap is mostly caused by all these white men in the South leaving the Democratic Party uh, after it becomes the party of civil rights and those sorts of things. White women in the South leave it as well, but not nearly at the same rates. All right, thank you. Um, if there are no more questions, um, I would like to hopefully speak for everyone here and, and thank you, Professor Wolberg, for an ex excellent lecture today. Uh, very appropriate topic and um, a great way for us to celebrate um, American government and constitutionalism and the, the places we can go from here. So uh, thank you all. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Have a, have a good afternoon.